As the world begins to emerge from the cave of the 21st century and opens its eyes onto the suffering from centuries of injustice and the bastardization of what it means to be free, the new Nomos podcast is a call. A call for a new beginning. A call for the new men and the new women that yearn to be truly free. A call for us to fulfill our destiny. A call for a new Nomos on the earth. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the New Nomos is and what we need to get there. The province of KwaZulu-Natal lies to the east of South Africa in an area which is nestled between the Drakensberg Mountains to the west and the warm waters of the Indian Ocean to the east. It is the homeland of the Zulu people, KwaZulu meaning the place of the Zulu, and it's home to the Zulu monarchy, and the majority population and language of the place is Zulu. Last month, in July 2021, anarchy was unleashed in the province in the form of rioting and widespread looting. This took place 26 years after the ANC took the reins of a post-apartheid South Africa, and quite frankly highlights the dismal failure of the ANC to reverse the historical disadvantages of apartheid. The rioting began under the pretext of a free Jacob Zuma campaign, but it began in three significant locations. Firstly, the townships of Durban and Joburg, which are a remnant of apartheid South Africa. They're still racially segregated. Secondly, in the squatter camps and shanty towns, a direct result of the government's failure to provide adequate housing, and the RDP project, the Reconstruction and Development Project, has been riddled with corruption and mismanagement. And thirdly, the hostels of the east of Johannesburg, a remnant of the heydays of gold mining, where single black men, mostly from the villages of Zululand, were separated from their families and brought to Johannesburg to work for the infamous mining houses. What we see as a result of apartheid town planning, the increased economic divide between the rich and the poor, South Africans still live in a society divided along racial and financial lines. At the same time, we see factional battles within the ruling party, and the focus of the media and the responses from politicians has been to provoke tensions between the black Zulu and Muslim Indian communities of the region. They have completely ignored the historical context and the failures of the government that has led directly to this catastrophe in the first place. Given the fact that I had the honor of meeting the previous Zulu king, King Zuelatini, this episode emerged out of a desire to understand the Zulu in more detail and explore where the hope lies 
for the people in that region and their future. I had this conversation with Ihsan Mate, who is a lecturer at Dallas College, is a Zulu, is South African, and has an in-depth knowledge of the Zulu from an historical, cultural, and political context. So, without much further ado, I present to you Episode 9, The Zulu, Nation, Monarchy, and Fitra. It's something one is proud of, to have a king. See, the king is always considered to be sacred. And it's known from the days of Shagazulu that, not that he had certain powers, but he was sort of touched by the divine. And that plays a, a major role in people's psyche and, and how people uh, shape and form their beliefs. So the king is a symbol of tradition. At that point, I've got to ask you, who was Shagazulu? And why was he significant in the history of South Africa and also the history of the Zulu. To fully explore the nature into the inquiry of Shaga Zulu, first, I have to explain before he got into power, right? The Zulus originally were a very minor, marginal group. So it was very insignificant. The biggest powers in the region of uh, KwaZulu-Natal was the Mtetwa clan. Mteta was the mentor of Shagazulu. He was the one who mentored him. Shagazulu's father was Sanzanga Khan. Shaga was conceived in a very strange way. Uh, Sanzanga Khan and Nandi were not married, so Shaga was born. So therefore, by tradition, Sanzanga Khan had to marry Nandi, who was Shaga's mother. So when he got married into the Zulus, there was a bit of a problem because of the family setting, because at that time, remember, a king could have many wives. And so with the struggle between Nandi and Senzanga Kona, they had to leave. So they were going from village to village. And that was the moment when Shaga was really suffering because he had no place to be. He had no sense of belonging because his father had ultimately rejected him until he went to the Mtetwa Paramountcy, which was, consisted of at least... 30 clans under the Mtata Paramountcy. So it was one of the most powerful. And these weren't Zulu? No, this is a different tribe of the Mtata. So the Mtata took him in. This is where he began to show his military prowess. Mtata mentored him from the beginning. And while he was still under Mtata, this is where he began to reform the army. And the reformation of the army is always a reflection and a change in society, just like as you have the internet, it was a change in society. And so, like everything, there's birth, there's rise and decay. In 1811, Dingiswayo, who was the main leader of the Mtatua, fell in battle against a man from the Ndwandre clan, which was also the, the biggest power in the region. His name was Zwite. And so, therefore, in the Mtatua, there was a vacuum for power. Because he was a man who was very scrupulous and he was a genius in his own way, he filled the vacuum, he took the remaining dissipated clans under the Mtato Paramountcy and he launched a series of attacks at this age is 24 years old. So he goes into battle and ultimately defeats Zwitegala, taking revenge for killing his mentor, the head of uh, the Mtato clan, Dingiswai. And so in that moment, he's already rose into supremacy 
there is no power that contests or can contest his, uh, his might. So he fully uh, reforms the army, and he starts a period which is significant in history called Mfetani, or crushing, or forced migration, whereby he began to pacify all the nations that were opposing him. Those who did not oppose him, I use the word Zulified. There, were, there was a process of Zulification. Now, a lot of historians say the process of this Mfekani, this crushing, this uh, forced migration, was the beginning of the formation of the Zulu kingdom. All the clans were united under the Zulu and under one king, who was Shaga. What do you mean by Zulification? Unification, for example, is you unify everybody. Zulification is different. So we know that the Nguni share the same proto-language and similar customs. But with Shaka Zulu is not only the language is the same, but all tradition is the same. It's not going to be different. The same as Mtetwa? Yeah, everything becomes the same. So it's, it's not that we are Mtetwa and we do our own thing. We are the Ndwandres and we do our own thing and we are something else. But you sort of bring everything together. That's why he's called not only a military reformer, but a cultural reform as well, because then he starts to reform the culture. He introduces Ibuto. Ibuto means a regiment, but each regiment was different and it had it, its own uh, modus operandi. So a man could not get married before he went to war. You have to go to war before you get married. This is one of the things he said. The dress code was changed. The dress code for the women would change. So if you've been to Kwasnotales, you've been, um, you see these long, uh, sort of these, uh, these hats the women wear. He was the one who introduced that. The beads represents something else as well. And so there is a common tradition and a common, a common uh, custom. Circumcision, which was a way of initiation, he said, look, there's no point to send men to go to the initiation school whilst they can go to war. And this is where they find themselves. This is where they prove that they're men. So he completely banned it. The, the, the point is, now everything is all unified. It's we are the Zulu and everybody else out there is not the Zulu. So Shaka basically created the Zulu nation. Absolutely. What is interesting about Chaga Zulu is it was a man who was moved by the unseen and that changed the nature of his disposition and everything because he believed he was destined for greatness. And in fact, if he, he, was, not, if he was not assassinated, he would have took over completely almost the entire Southern Africa. That's what would have happened. And even when he was assassinated, he didn't fight it or he didn't run away or didn't shy. He just opened his chest and he let them do it, which shows the act of courage that he had even when he was dying. You have to look at the Zulu nation in this way, right? Let's look at the names. Shaga is the one who shakes the nations. That's his name. Shaka, that means shake. Yeah, the one who shakes the nations. It's like the one who, not even torments, but the one, you know, you feel his wrath. It's like shaking. Now, I'm going to skip Dingane a bit, and I'm going to go to Mpande. Mpande means root. And root. Mpande was? Dingane is a brother. So it's Shaga, Dingane, Mpande, the next 
in succession. The three brothers. Yeah. Sumpande means root. Then you have Kachwa, who's the son of Mpande. Kachwa is accused of, not accused, but it was inevitable to cause a Zulu civil war between him and his brother because his father Mpande gave Zipepu, who was his brother, he made him the, the, the heir to the throne. But they went to a civil war. Now I want to go to the next one, which is the son of Mpande, who is Utinizu. Dinizulu means the one who bothers the nation. Bothers. Yeah, he bothers the nation. So with him, the Zulu kingdom collapses. It's finished. And this was his name from birth or what? Yeah, from birth. From birth, he was destined to be the one that bothers the nation. Yeah, because under under him, the the Zulu nation collapses. He's sent into exile in St. Helen when Napoleon was exiled. Um, And then obviously you have other ones. What, what, what happens is with the name, you see, that's, that's where it gets interesting. Your name follows you. Like from the beginning of Shaka Zulu until the end, the name follows you. So if you've been given a certain name, you know, you are the embodiment of that name. Whatever you do, you're destined to do that. The, the other aspect as well of, of language is the conception and understanding of, of God which I think is also an interesting phenomenon to explore. You can say unkulunkulu, you can say umvelingani, and you can say umsak. Unkulunkulu means the old, old one, the ancient one. And then umvelingani means it expresses priority. See, the, 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 even it is the first one. The umsanga is the source of being. Umsanga is the source of being. So according to the Zulu legend, in the beginning there was darkness, and from darkness dwelt a god. And from that god, Unkulunkulu was created. But Unkulunkulu came from this source of being. What's the significance with the reed bed? That's where I'm getting it. This is where you're going to find it interesting. When darkness is still the predominant force and Unkulunkulu is created, it springs from the reeds. And from the reeds, the moment he, he emerges, he sees men and women emerging as well. So this is the beginning what, of what you call the creation. This is where they came from, from these reeds. And in that moment, he starts from the reeds again to create life. Animals, uh, fishes, uh, rivers and oceans. I know that Rumi's Madhnavi starts with... I can't remember the exact line, I have to find it, but it starts... With the reed. With yeah. the reed. Because in Zulu, the reed means the source of the... It's, it's where everything comes from. It's where you are searching for your origin. So it has that significance to that. Your primal being is on that. Which is, comes back to when I was speaking to Hajab Baka about Goethe and his search for the Ur plant, which was the plant which everything comes from. So in that sense, from a Zulu perspective, very much so, that would be the reed, correct? That's the reed. That's the first, that's the source. The source of everything would be the reed. Would be the reed, yeah. Everything starts from there. And from there, the entire cosmic uh, reality is formed from that. Often when people look at the Zulus and, okay, let me phrase it this way. Christianity has completely destroyed 
Zulu religion. I want to use the word religion, although I don't want to use it, but I'm compelled to use it. Zulus never had any conception of religion. When the missionaries came, they asked them, who do you worship? Who's your God? And people were referring to different things. People would say, Nkulu. Somebody would say, somebody would say this and somebody would say that. They said, no, but this is the God, you know, and the Trinity. What I mean by Zulu metaphysics is the primordial form of understanding who the divine was and making sense of the divine. Everything that was on earth was a reflection of the attributes of the divine. So they always believed in, in the unseen. Even today, it's still predominantly in the unseen. What I'm seeing quite clearly is that the, the, the bonding factor here is fitra. Um, I asked my father, what does the word fitra mean? And what is the link between fitra and idul fitr? The word, and I was pretty convinced that the word was the same. Anyway, so I phoned him and I asked him. And he went to his Arabic dictionary and he said that the, the, the two words do come from the root fatara. And in the Quran, one of the tafsirs on the term, on the use of that word form in an ayah of the Quran, it was defined as breaking the earth in order to dig a well. So it's like that breaking, breaking something open in order to go down in, to build a well or to dig a well. So that was the term of fatara. And then he said that in the, in the case of Eid al-Fitr, that form of the word, fatara, is to break, instead of like breaking the ground, so to speak, is to break your fast. Obviously, the, the, the Ramadan Eid, you know, it's you're breaking fast every day, and then the Eid itself is the ultimate breaking fast, because now you've broken it and it's finished and it's in the past. Then he went into the dictionary and it said that the word fitra is the natural disposition and what was there at the beginning before everything else. So these were all different forms that derive from that same word fatara. Now, I had the honor of meeting King Zwelitini, the previous king, in Ulundi at the Royal Homestead. We were, well, we were delivering a message to him. We were received there. And I remember in the conversation with him, the, the one thing that really struck with me, and I remember it very clearly, is he said, the Americans, they come to me to ask access to my people's land in order to break the ground, to frack it for their own profit. And he said, the Muslims, they come to me to ask access to my people's land, to break the ground in order to build wells for my people. And it was only when I was recounting this just after the, the Eid al-Fitr that I realized that, that what the king had said to me and what I'd asked my father the night before, because this was just after Ramadan, and I'd asked him about the connection between fitra and fitr, and the fact that he had used that, that definition being breaking the ground in order to dig a well, and that is exactly the same thing that the king had said to me when I was sitting there in his homestead, and I was just like, well, if that's not a proof of the, the link between not just the fitra of the Zulu, but the link between the, the fitra of the Zulu and the practice of the Muslims, 
and the Muslims of Durban who do. I mean, we, we, we all know people who have dug a well, you know, it's part of our tradition. But it was that link between the fitra of the Zulu and the fitra of the Zulu represented by the embodiment of the Zulu, like you mentioned, the king, and he mentioned that to me. It's something that resonated with me very strongly. I think that's extraordinary because the whole process before Eid is uh, you don't eat, um, you eat very little, but during the day you don't eat. In Zulu there's a ceremony which is often not disregarded, but overlooked. And it's called the Festival of the First Fruits, whereby the king assumes the nature of a sacred king. So he's no longer just a king, but he becomes a sacred king. And before everybody else, before that particular day arrives, everybody should refrain from uh, uh, plucking fruits or any sort of vegetables. But when that day arrives, the king is the first one to taste the entire vegetation, fruits or vegetables, before his subjects. The British, after the Battle of Isandlwana, they abolished it completely. The person who revived it in 1990 was King uh, Goodwill Zulitin himself. He reinstated back that practice. In the beginning, during that festival, after the king has tasted all the fruits and says to everybody, okay, now we can eat. There was a, an event that would happen whereby a bull would be placed in the kraal and the young men were ordered to kill it, but without any weapons. So they had to go inside the kraal and confront a mighty bull that is absolutely ferocious. And they wouldn't come out if that bull had not died. So this is you and the bull. And the act of killing the bull, that meant that the powers of the bull, that strength, that uh, ferociousness was transferred to the king. So South Africa made a petition on the animal rights that you can't do it anymore now. But the king still continued with that practice. So tell me a bit more about this practice, since it's one of these, it's just, <laughs> I love it because this whole journey is like, the next episode manifests itself from something that was said three or four episodes before. And then it turns out that the conversation brings up something that came from the last episode. So like the last episode that I did was on the, the bullfight, I mean, obviously in the Spanish form and how it is today. But then from my own personal research, you know, I go into doing a little bit of research on the bullfight and going further and further and further back. Like, where did it actually come from? How did the bullfight emerge in Spain? And I mean, you see when you go further into it that it came from the Muslim rule of the Iberian Peninsula. And then you go even further back and you find that, I mean, I did the first episode on the Iliad, but the the because from a Western perspective, the Iliad is the, the original song, it's the original poem, it's the original piece of literature. But there's an even earlier poem called the Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is even older than the Iliad, there is the bullfight. And there is the, the I think, if I'm not mistaken, because I haven't read it, but if I'm not mistaken, the hero has to, in order to escape the heavens or in order to escape the underworld or whatever it is, he has to battle with the bull. 
So there's something, there's like this kind of primordial essence, so to speak, this primordial kind of metaphor of man fighting the beast and the beast represented in the form of a bull. I'm I'm just curious now. You're saying the young men go into the corral or go into the what do you call it? Yeah, you go inside the corral. They have to kill it without any weapons. So that means you have to use your your hands in order to kill the bull. But knowing how ferocious the bull is, you are risking your life in order to pull that stunt. So it's a very daunting and extremely difficult task to do. And who are these men that are sent in? Like, do they have some? special rank or something or they just shoved in there that in the beginning Shagazulu used to okay let's say in the beginning that was a pre-battle preparation see with drums being beaten up you are sort of in a state of trance whereby you know tomorrow you're going to war and there's a possibility that you might not come back but at this very moment you are confronted with a bull Thinking about it from a logical point of view, even a cow, it's very difficult to do it without, if you don't even have a knife. Even if there's eight of you, it's still impossible. So it takes a different kind of man to do it. And if you do it, then you become a different kind of man. How do they kill it? You just have to snap the neck. You have to bring it down. You have to literally take it down and wrestle with it to a point whereby it ultimately gives up and it says, look, I've got no way out. It takes a very long time. But that's the thing, you when you emerge out of it, because anything can happen. There is no guarantee that you're going to come out of the crawl alive. So that means it's me with the beast, it's me with death, and this is me alone. The definition of a nation is a grouping of people that have a common geography, a common culture, a common language, and a common heritage so like genetic lineage that's the definition of a nation so i mean if you look outside you see the punjabi are a nation the patan are a nation the afrikaner in within the south african environment are a nation the sutu are a nation the twana are a nation etc etc the swazi are a nation and the zulu are a nation i want to hear your thoughts as a south african zulu on the Zulu nation as a nation within South Africa? I mean, to expand on that, I think the, the best way to describe it is by birth. And one of the things that happened, the umbilical cord today, when it's been cut from a baby, is considered to be medical waste. But when an umbilical cord is cut from a baby who's born into a particular geographic uh, scenario and the umbilical cord is buried on the land, what you have is not only the connection with the mother, but you have that connection with the land. And so you have this group of people whose umbilical cords are all buried in that particular land. That's what forges them as as a nation, as well as the rich cultural and traditional set of values that they had from the beginning, even in the time of Shaga Zulu. Being Zulu should be a symbol or an example of moral embodiment of virtue, because if you define it in that way, 
that means virtue is something that is living. Within the Zulu nation, virtues are cultivated, is one of the most important things, as well as the attachment to the land. And with the attachment to the land, it's not something very superficial, it's not something political, it's, it's, it's where you come from, because the earth, in, in the beginning, it was, according to the Zulu myth, it was a lifeless rock, but because of the reeds, it was alive. And through these umbilical cords that are buried all there, it is something that is living. That's one thing. The second thing, the future of the Zulu. It's, it's an interesting thing. Like you said, we live in a rainbow nation. And when I was preparing my classes for the college on South African history, what I realized was most historians, you know, they jump into the 25th or the 20th or 19th century South Africa, and they're already tainted by uh, colonial aspects or invasion, and they can't make sense of what is happening. South Africa's political culture is something quite complex, something quite sort of like a contradiction. Politicians don't learn from the past, which is a big mistake. And when they use the past, they use it in order to lay siege on the minds of the people, threaten them so that they are afraid of something of the unknown. And so the pre-colonial history of the Zulus is what is important, is not to progress, because progression means a denial of... You deny the man the unseen. That's what progression is. But I would say the future of the Zulu is not based on progression, this idea of progression, but it's based on a word which I really like, revelopment. Because when you revelop, you go back to your ancient, primal way of life. Even though you are in this modern setting, it distinguishes you from everybody else, from the rest. It doesn't mean you're better than everybody, but that means you have something. South Africa is a state artificially contrived. But the problem is all the nine provinces represent something different. Free state was the state of the Africana Republic. Of course, it was, was one of the poorest republics. The Transvaal Republic was more wealthy because it had access to gold. Kazunotal is the Zulus. Lesotho is uh, the Sotho's. Botswana is the, the Tswana's. Swaziland are the Swati's. So, you see already the, the map and the geography of South Africa tells you who lives where. Before there was never any, uh, there was never any provinces. You know, people knew that that was the Zulu land, that's where the Zulus belonged, that was the Sutu land. If there is any need, then they would go to war if there was a matter that needed to be disputed. We live in different times. One of my favorite, and this is going to come as a shock, what I would call the most heroic act or deed under the entire Zulu kingdom was in 1909, in 1909 under Chief Bambata who rebelled against the British taxation. You see, because, let's put it this way, freedom means not being taxed. That was the ultimate act of freedom, even under the Romans. You should not tax another man. A man who pays tax is technically enslaved, very subject 
but when the taxation system was was uh, introduced, he refused it. So he resisted, and by his resistance, and he knew he was outnumbered. In fact, he even died for what he believed in, because the English army uh, was like a firing squad. You know, they they marshaled the men and and they shot these men who only had uh, spears and uh, knobkers. And then he died because of of that. But for me, that represents freedom. See, that's where freedom is. The motto of of the Marabi tune back was uh, calling people to the truth and abolishing unjust taxation and spreading dawah. And the Scots, while a hundred of us remain alive, we will not submit in the slightest measure to the domination of the English. We do not fight for honor, riches or glory, but solely for freedom, which no true man gives up but with his life. Devastating. That's the declaration of our birth. That's part of it. That's devastating. But that's exactly what he did. He said, I will not pay taxation. To the English. To the English. And he said, so I'm not is, gonna... I mean, this is from 1320-something or other. You know, the English, they haven't changed. <laughs> and, you know, so he said, I'm not going to do it. And, and so, if, with few other men, he resisted that. He said, that was resistance. He was not fighting exactly like you're saying. He was not fighting for glory. He was, a, he was a chief of a Zondi clan. The only thing he said is, I'm not going to pay the tax. And I'm not going to submit to the English rule. Now, what just happened in, in Durban? I mean, look, what, what, are the, what, are the raw, what do we see? We see an orchestrated attack on the infrastructure of the city of Durban. There's, there's no doubt that this was orchestrated. It's not, it's not some random, spontaneous event. The fact that there's hundreds of taxis taking people from here to there, you know, key strategic points have been targeted, etc., etc. Lots of people are framing the people that have been doing the looting as like putting it under the banner of Zulu people. And they're saying this is the Zulu people because Zuma is Zulu and the Zulu people support Zuma and therefore blah, 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 this kind of narrative that they're putting in the news that people are fighting for Zuma. I also see that what ends up happening is you're reading BBC News, you're reading France 24, you're reading New York Times or whatever, and it's being said that the Zulu people, Zulu, 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 the Zulu's rebelling, the Zulu's this and the other, and it's becoming a narrative. Now, I see as the kind of hope for that part of South Africa is the reunification of the Zulu people under the authority and, and the legitimacy of the Zulu monarchy. And when you look on the other side, you see that with all of this anarchy and with all this destruction and with all of this infrastructural decay, who are the people who have been helping and supporting and both from a from kind of a militia perspective in the sense of protecting people's livelihoods and protecting people's property etc has been the muslims there and also on the other side you've got muslims throughout the country organizing truckloads of food and supplies etc etc and moving them with their own security forces etc etc to get needed foodstuffs to the people to to where it's needed so you have 
what I see are these two forces of people that should be allied together not to ransack the state and to destroy the state and to break things apart and cause anarchy but to do the reverse which is allied together and create something new and better and something that functions unlike the supposed state of South Africa because South Africa doesn't function it is a failed state that's what I see that's how I see it that's how I see the future of that part of the world where do you see the hope where do you see the hope lying with the new king given the history of the Zulus they've always been portrayed as warmongers people who were always eager to fight but that has always been like that historically even the news today the propaganda that you mentioned of you know you you you, you look at social media you look at the news you look at all kind of channels you find that the zulus are the causes of destruction etc because of their given history what we have today it's an interregnum in which the state cannot function the state has ceased to function and so when you have people who who have a certain capacity to come together and and unite for a certain common good that has been viewed as something of a threat something quite not acceptable and something that needs to be crushed and dispelled the big question is what happens when the muslims and the zulus in that region come together if one looks at or one wants to understand the zulus and their future in terms of islam islam doesn't abolish anything but it cleanses and purifies what is already there and what has been lost the current cultural wave south africa is facing is incompatible with the zulu ethos tasawuf is compatible with the zulu ethos with the discovery of 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 tasawuf then we have a different kind of man emerging we have a different set of reborn revived nation a nation that's proud of who they are you see so you're taking something further on and that's where the the dean spreads from that there are many similarities i mean look the drums for example it's something which is in the blood of the zulus we zulus when we hear drums we can't help ourselves being in the hadra is something that is is natural you don't force it it, it just comes about today people don't have a sense of of identity and it becomes a problem they don't know where to look at then if you're zulu by blood then everything changes dramatically that's what makes everything different is a sense of identity is a sense of belonging and that is something that the king can give his people he can give to his people and he can by example and by direction still be in charge of it and it's not something that can be easily taken away i mean the the zulu kingdom has has undergone a series of of beatings and trials and tribulations it still exists even now and people are still clinging on to that and they're still yearning for yearning for for it even more
So now is the time for its revival with the king himself. Because he's the embodiment of the name. So for me, it's the time of revival. And, you know, there are these new possibilities. The one who revives obviously changes the form. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. To conclude, I'd like to recount a story which I was told recently about the Deputy Chief Justice of South Africa, Judge Raymond Zondo, a Zulu man who hails from KwaZulu-Natal. Now, coming from an impoverished background, while he was at university studying law, his mother was struggling to provide for his siblings and the household. So he went to a local Muslim businessman and asked him for a loan to feed his family while he was studying. For three years, his mother could go to this Muslim's shop and buy provisions for the family. When Judge Zondo went back to this businessman three years later after finishing his studies and asked him how he would be able to repay the debt, the reply was that the judge owed nothing. This generosity was given for the sake of Allah. And I think that perfectly highlights the possibility and potential of an alliance between the Zulu and the Muslims. Thank you.